Welcome to the Soul Sessions Podcast. Deep dive into the causes and real issues underlying addiction, codependency, emotional eating, weight concerns, and the trance of unworthiness. Tune in weekly to befriend, nourish, and heal body, feelings, mind, and soul. And now, your host, soul-centered psychotherapist, trauma expert, and mind-body eating coach, Jody Gale. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Soul Sessions podcast. Today, my guest is Carolyn Coston. Carolyn is a renowned, highly sought-after eating disorder clinician, author, and speaker. Recovered from anorexia, Carolyn recognized her calling after successfully treating her first eating disorder client. She was first to publicly take the position that people with eating disorders can become fully recovered. After 15 years in private practice and running hospital programs, Carolyn opened the first residential facility for eating disorders, which ran for 22 years. Carolyn's contributions to the field are extensive, including six books, including eight keys to recovery from an eating disorder. Currently, she runs the Carolyn Coston Institute, which trains and certifies eating disorder coaches and offers continuing education for professionals. She lectures around the world and is a passionate, inspiring force in the field. Welcome, Carolyn. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you today. And as I was researching for this interview, it just made me realize that, you know, it was a couple of years since I trained with you and watching all those videos in the um, Carolyn Coston Institute. So I was basically kind of having a relationship with you every day (laughs) and watching hundreds of videos and doing all those assignments. And then I realized just how much I missed the training, even though it was hard. (laughs) That's so nice. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to talking today. So professionals in the field, they will obviously know you very well, but for someone perhaps who is listening today who doesn't know about you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your own eating disorder history and recovery? I'll try to be brief. (laughs) (laughs) I would say the the thing that I I know now, looking back at it, is, you know, I had an eating disorder at a time before there were any books out or journals or residential treatment centers. And actually, before people really had come out and really focused around what happens to people that have these illnesses. And so the thing that I sort of made a name for myself was that I recovered from anorexia and started treating people. And I felt like if I recovered, they could be recovered also. And I never looked back from that position. And at the time, people were treating eating disorders more like addictions, all the eating disorders. And as if you're always going to have this. And I just felt like that wasn't the case. I didn't believe that was true. I, I didn't believe that you couldn't totally overcome this. So early on, I sort of made a name for myself in that way. I think I was the first person to stand up in an international conference and say, I'm recovered mm. and I believe you can be fully recovered. And just that sort of stance around being recovered versus in recovery for the rest of your life. I, th- I think that's so important because for people early on in their recovery, to have that sort of hope that they can be recovered and that they're not going to manage that, have to manage that for the rest of their lives, which can be so off-putting, I think, at the beginning of recovery. Well, I think it's depressing. I I think that I've actually had clients say to me, you know, if I'm going to have this forever, why bother? Well, exactly. (laughs) Well, I also think that it sort of stemmed from OA and 
which stemmed from Alcoholics Anonymous. And yes. people were saying, you know, one of the, the first step is I admit I'm powerless over food. And I always mm. thought that was so weird. And I said, I don't want you to admit you're powerless over food. You have way more power than food has, you know? Um, so it didn't seem, didn't seem right to me. Yeah. What made you take that first step? I mean, you know, often people are dragged kicking and screaming into treatment. You know, that's one sort of group of people. Other people, I know for myself, I got to a point where I just couldn't keep living the way that I was living. But especially back in those days, for me, I didn't really know that I had bulimia until I'd seen Lady Diana on, on the news. And that was in the 80s. And she yeah. had talked about it. Before that, I, I just thought, oh, this is a really great way to be able to eat what I want and, and lose weight sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. In those days, you know, who knew it was an illness? I just thought, you know, I was dieting and I was better at dieting than all my girlfriends, you know, mm. and I was the successful one who lost all the weight. But then, of course, my brain got hijacked and I couldn't stop losing the weight. Yes. I think I was a little bit like you. And I think this is a very, very important thing to, to point out for the listeners, whoever they may be that I don't think people necessarily all of a sudden say, oh, I want to turn this around, or even slowly. Uh, what I tell people is, you don't even have to know that you want to get better, whatever that means. But what you do need to know is that you no longer want to live like this. And that sounds like what happened to you. It's what happened to me. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know the words recovering, recovered. I didn't know what any of that meant. I just felt like, wow, I don't want to keep doing this. I knew I was trapped. Yep. I knew that I had all these strange behaviors. I couldn't eat normally with people. And I knew that I wanted to at least try something different. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because it's often in that, I think, what's not going right. And I think we're going to talk about recovering too later on, but that's a really important point to make. Because I think sometimes too, some I know with a lot of people, they're kind of waiting to know in order to do. And sometimes it's just not as clear cut as that. Yeah, you know, this happens in many, many ways in terms of recovering and getting better. Mm. Like for the same thing, I tell people, you know, a lot of people think, well, I just need to have therapy and to help myself so I don't feel guilty about eating and then maybe I can eat. And yeah. I always say, you know, it doesn't really work like that. You have to kind of start eating and keeping your food and you'll feel bad about it, but you've got to get to the other side of that. You can't, you can't just keep doing therapy, hoping things are going to change. You have to change your behaviors and yep. tolerate that feeling when you're changing your behaviors. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, being a long-term therapist, that was one of the things that I really loved about the coach training because we can sit there forever talking about why, 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 but sometimes you need to do in order to know. <laughs> so, yeah, I think for me, and especially in relationship to this particular aspect of what we're talking, going to talk about today, mm. is that at the same time that I was going through all this, I was also really expanding my horizons in terms of reading philosophical texts, and I was reading things about Buddhism, and I was really coming to an understanding of who we are as a human being apart from this physical body on the planet. And, yeah. and the physical body obviously is the one that gets all wrapped up and the ego mind, you know, gets wrapped up into all these external ways to validate or measure ourselves as yeah. opposed to a deeper internal way. And yeah. I was 
looking at those things at that time in my life and coming to this position that I'm a soul that happens to have a body and not the other way around. Exactly. And that's a good sort of um, lead into my next question for you. You've written several books and today I'd like for us to focus on one particular key in your book, Eight Keys, and that is key eight, which is about finding meaning and purpose. And we often hear that treatment should be holistic, but my experience is that spirituality is often neglected and especially where treatment's rooted in the medical model. So I mean, this, this key is really close to my heart because spirituality is the underlying context in my work as a psychosynthesis therapist, mm-hmm. but also as a Carolyn Costin coach, as you know. So I'm particularly interested for the women listening today to learn about the notion of soul self and spirituality's role in the etiology and recovery from eating disorders. And I've just got a quote from you here that I found in my training notes and it's from key eight and you write while the first step in recovery is the elimination of eating disorder behaviors being recovered means a change in thoughts feelings behaviors and relationships being recovered means having a different relationship with oneself and the world the first seven keys are about helping people recover from their eating disorder key eight is about what helps people want to recover and stay recovered in other words it's about the kind of life each client is recovering to this is where we bring in the concept of having a more spiritual soulful life i guess first of all i'd like to you know some people might be having a strong reaction already to the word spirituality especially uh, for people who have grown up in where there may have been spiritual trauma or abuse so spirituality means different things to different people what do you mean by spirituality that's a really good point because you have to make sure that it stays away from religion, which has a lot of dogma attached to it. For me, spirituality means that when you recognize that there is something transcendent, that there is something more to life than just you, just yourself you know, yep. on this planet, yep. that there's a connection, there are forces that we cannot see, that there are things that have a different... Mm, it's almost on a different plane and yet it's very simple. It doesn't have to be anything that you have to have a leap of faith in. You have to have a leap of faith with certain religions, but with spirituality, it's all about getting in touch with your own essence or being that's underneath that chattering mind of yours, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. One of our meditations in psychosynthesis is it starts with, I have a body and I am more than my body. And what we're doing in that is helping people see the more than in themselves. And I, and I guess for me, as you're talking, it, it's speaking to the essence of someone rather than just their body or just their personality. Yeah, and also it's the part that I think connects us to other beings and yeah. to the planet. And there is an essence, there's a life force And we know that now. This is why I think so interesting about quantum physics and what we learn science teaches us that we are all made of the same atoms, you know? Yes. We we are all connected in a way. And when you start looking at that, you realize spirituality and, and things like quantum physics or the fundamental laws of the universe are the same. And what we learn is that we're more than this ego mind. And I keep coming back to that because that's our thoughts. That's our feelings. That's the things that come and go. But there's a main part of us, the essence that is the same. 
Yes. And that's a really good point about the ego. So for people that um, are listening and maybe this is a, uh, the first time they're hearing about these concepts, how would you describe the difference between ego and soul? Well, the first thing I want to say is that people make the mistake, even people who are learning about these concepts, like when I'm training coaches or therapists and they start, uh, the first mistake is to think that we're talking bad about the ego. So we need an ego. The ego is the part of us that is identifies ourselves as a separate human being. It's the I, it's the I, I am Carolyn, all the qualifiers that identify me. I am a therapist. I am a wife. I own a house, you know, all of the things I'm five foot four inches tall. Yeah. All of the things that identify me as separate my thoughts, my feelings and everything else. And the ego helps us negotiate the planet. You know, it, it helps us live. Uh, It helps me study for a test. It helps me get ready for this podcast. And the soul is more of the being part of human being, you know, it's the essence that is not attached to any particular identity. It's more a little bit like maybe people don't, don't understand it at all can think of it a little bit more like, conscious awareness or yep. or a presence or an essence or a life force that is in me and that is in my dog and that is in flowers and whatever there's a life force but a human being has a life force that is contained in this body yeah so there's a conscious awareness that becomes Carolyn Costin and then my ego helps me negotiate myself in this body and, you know, I think that's really important sort of bringing awareness to the fact that we, we need an ego or, you know, if we think it in other ways, we need a personality because that's how we express our soul essence in the world. It's how we evolve. It's how we learn lessons. It's how we grow. And I think one of the things that I guess it's the sort of spread of the internet and, you know, there's a lot of sort of self-help and spirituality on, you know, Instagram and stuff. And just thinking about how there's a lot of spiritual bypassing and sort of trying to get rid of the ego and, you know, there's important elements of that. But we, I think the fact that we, it's important for people to know that we still need an ego and to be egoless would be yeah, I think Eckhart Tolle says it, uh, he has the, the greatest quote about it, which really is, you know, the ego is a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. <laughs> yeah, like And that. you don't want the ego totally in control because let me just try something for a minute. So mm-hmm. if the listeners say, what I would say to them is, if you take away, if I no longer was married, if I no longer was a therapist, mm. if I no longer owned this house in Malibu, if I no longer... Uh, wrote any books if I no longer would I still be me so if you take all the identifiers away the essence that's still left that's sort of the soul self that doesn't care about all those things yeah it is a life force it doesn't care about so when I say the Eckhart uh, Tolle quote the ego is a wonderful servant but a terrible master if it becomes master that means that all of those things that I say I am, all those identifiers become way more important than the essence. That's really important with eating disorder recovery. Exactly. Exactly. That was my next point, which is in eating disorder recovery and in my own life, what happened was what the number on the scale said, how many calories I ate in a day, how many fat grams, how far, how many miles I ran, 
all of those identifiers became way more important than the essence of me. Mm. And that's mm. when I, I think an eating disorder in many ways is an ego running up, an ego gone out of control, disconnected from our soul self. Yeah. And that leads into my next question. So, you know, for people who struggle with their relationship with food and their body, there's, you know, there's obviously there's many underlying causes. It's very complex, but how does a disconnection from soul self and spirituality play a role in the cause of eating concerns? You know, it's interesting uh, as I've been treating people over these last, you know, four decades now, I think people come to me and the first thing is they actually don't even have a relationship with anything other than their ego. They don't even realize they have this soul self underneath there, this part of them, this presence that you can begin to get in touch with when you just close your eyes and start focusing on your breath and realizing, wow, my breath, there's a life force going on in there that's separate from my chattering mind. And I think that one of the first things is helping people begin to see that they have these two aspects of self. And I think that when soul gets disconnected, it's, it has a, it searches for things. It searches for meaning. It searches for, you know, that, that's why I say a lot of times, I think eating disorder rituals replace the rituals that human beings over millennium have, you know, come up with different rituals that we do. They're kind of get us in touch with soul, you know, when you light candles, when you sit in a circle, even when you pray, there are so many things that I think are rituals that we have to help us appreciate what I would call, you know, the sacred. Yeah. Think yeah. things as being sacred. And I think what happens is when the ego runs amok, we become over-identified yep. and think that's all we are as an ego and we don't stop and take time to, to rest in anything other than, you know, how far, how fast, how long, how much. Well, that's right. And thinking about back to when I was suffering with bulimia, I remember sitting in my therapy and for the first time having that very similar sort of conversation in a way and really having that light bulb moment, oh my God, my eating disorder yeah. is something else. And the fact that that something else was, I'd actually had a peak experience swimming with a wild dolphin. So that something else was like this sort of natural high as well, you know, and after 13 years of struggling with food and actually long before that, I, I'd had issues as a child as well in terms of thinking that I was fat at, at the age of sort of from the age of five, really. So most of my life had been spent thinking that I was this A, fat and B, that I was my eating disorder. So to have this sort of light bulb moment that there's something else there was really, that that was really the catalyst for my really participating in my recovery, I think. Well, I call those soul moments. Yeah. I try to work with clients in terms of getting them to begin to look for soul moments and really appreciate them. We forget because we're moving so fast. And, and by the way, I had an experience like that swimming with wild dolphins in Bimini. Oh, did know. you? Oh, yes. I've looked at Bimini several times to go there for Amazing. a holiday. Yeah. Amazing. Anyway, just getting someone to go out and I know it sounds kind of corny, but mm. to I would go out with my clients and look at the moon, go out and look at a sunset, look at a rainbow. And see, we used to have this awe and mystery, you know, mm. ancient people would look up at a rainbow and it was sacred, you know, and just, and science comes along 
and helps us to understand, oh, it's the reflection of this light and, the color, and that's <laughs> yeah. why. And then we think just because we understand it scientifically, it takes the miraculous away from it. Mm. And, and uh, what I try to do is teach people that just because we can write down a formula with a light reflect reflection or, or refraction or whatever it's called, mm. doesn't have to take away the awesomeness of it and how miraculous it is, you know? Yeah. So get back in touch with that and get back to the, take your ego mind out of it, all that intellectual understanding and go look at these colors arching across the sky, you know, mm -hmm. that can be a soul moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I was thinking if someone was sitting at home at night, they're more likely to be swiping through Instagram or looking at rainbows on people's sort of, um, and which is fine. I think using images is great as well. But people have no, really lost, lost connection with the natural world. And, you know, if you sort of said to someone initially, like, go out and, and look at a rainbow, it's like, oh, that's great. But we've just lost that connection, I think. Well, and honestly, and I don't want to sound crass, but it's mm. like they go out, take a picture of it, post it on Instagram, you know, mm. uh, and, and then it's over. And sometimes sitting for a few minutes and realizing that you're on this whirling planet, you know, mm. both of us can, can probably talk like this for hours, but yes. <laughs> getting, getting in touch with that again, because that then leads to other things about mm. your own self and your own body, which happens to be your earth suit on yes. this planet and appreciating it for something different and not getting rid of ego. I mean, I post pictures on Instagram too, sure. but again, not thinking that's all you are. Yeah. That's not all you are. Just sort of rewinding a little bit, what do you think actually causes that loss of soul connection to begin with? Well, in some ways, I think it has to be taught. So I think that we partly lose it because, and I notice it as each generation of people I treat, you know, that the more ubiquitous technology and instant reward from phones and mm computers and television, the more you have all of that, the more you're fed stuff through technology, I think the less you have time and attention or anyone teaching you the other way around. It's sort of like nature. I think going into nature helps do it. I think that's a kind of a fast track to getting in touch with it in a yeah. way. Um, just like they say about meditation, that meditation sort of brings soulfulness to you i mean uh yeah yeah excuse it, well meditation does but nature brings sort of meditation to you so i would take my clients i would say okay we're all going to go for a walk which of course they all want to do because it was exercise okay. so i would take them from the residential yeah. treatment center and say you can all go for a walk as long as you don't talk <laughs> that that would have to be the rule they, they would they, and once we would get back in, into the foothills with the big oak trees and the stream mm. and all that and they weren't talking afterwards they would thank me afterwards they would say they had a different experience than they'd ever have you're reminding me of i was in san francisco actually the date of the last election and i went out to muir woods and mm. there was the big trees there and as you enter into the woods there there's a sign saying please be silent and take in 
the whole experience, listen to the trees. I could not believe, I mean, I was one of only about 10 people there, but I could not believe that people could not be quiet. <laughs> I, was, I just want to listen to the trees. There's a sign there telling you to be quiet. <laughs> I went for a hike the other day, you know, and someone had their boom box, you know, hiking. Oh, with people. So this is going back to the question, I think mm. we're not taught it. And I think the problem with religion is, when it becomes hiked up with dogma, there's all these tenets you have to follow and, you know, you have to believe this and that. Whereas about soul and the way Buddhism would teach it, for example, in Buddhism as a philosophy, mm. it's not a religion because yes. the philosophy is go internal and discover for yourself. You don't mm. have to believe anything that I say. Mm-hmm. See what you feel when you go inside and you quiet your mind and you get in touch with your breath. And you sit for a few minutes and just be with yourself. Meditation is befriending yourself. And what more do eating disorder patients need but to befriend themselves? Oh, absolutely. And and that's, I was thinking then you talked about some soul moments, but, you know, how does connecting with soul, self and spirituality assist in the healing process? And you've started to touch on that by being in nature and by coming home to oneself through the breath. You know, I know in our Carolyn Coston training that we we talk about soul moments, soul lessons, bringing soul back into life through food. Can you give, yeah, I guess give people some examples. So someone's listening, they're maybe thinking that they have a problem with food or they're just into recovery or maybe even way further down the line, but they're maybe still feeling a little bit stuck. What kind of practical things other than what we've been talking about, how can they bring soul into their lives? What does that look like? Well, one of the ways is to do Oh, there's so many ways. Uh, let me think. One of the ways is beginner's mind, uh-huh. where you begin, instead of seeing something like a tree or an apple, and, you know, once we know what those things are, we see it, we just walk by, you know? When you have beginner's mind, you think of what would it be if this was the first time I ever saw a tree or wow. I ever tasted an apple? And what I like to do with clients is I like to say, okay, pretend like you're from Mars or, you know, some (laughs) other planet. I just use Mars because it's easy. And you come down to this planet and you just tasted an apple for the first time and you're going to describe it back to your leader. (laughs) So then I would have them look at a flower. And I actually had the clients do it. Write down everything, the description of what does it look like, describe the thorns, what do you think they're for, you know, the whole thing, and then send it back to the leader all the way up to now describe a human body. Mm. And what's super interesting about it is people will do their best to describe, wow, what does an apple really taste like? And how do you explain the juiciness in your mouth Mm. and the peel and that it grows on this big thing, you know? And same thing with a flower. And then when it gets in, they always are able to do it. And there's no disparaging words, right? There's no Mm. criticism. There's nothing negative. Now I say, I want you to to write about your body as if it was the earth suit you had to take when you came from Mars to Mm. be on this planet. Now write back to the leader what it's like, you know, what is the suit? And it's interesting if clients start to say anything disparaging, I would just go up and say, I know you got to start over because you didn't do that about the flowers, you know? Yeah, that's like right. When, you, when you're just, I would have a, a vase of flowers in the room and you didn't write, oh, my petals are smaller than so-and-so's petals or my skin is longer or my thorns are shorter. That didn't really matter. 
Yeah, so, very, so that comparison sort of has crept into the body, but not, yes, that's right. You, you yeah. wouldn't sit there and judge a flower like that. Or a tree, your branches are longer than mine. You know, so that's a way to begin to help people begin to see from more of a, uh, Thomas More calls it the re-enchantment of everyday life. Yeah. Where you go sort of back and how do we re-enchant again so we don't take things for granted because it's hard to describe soul. You kind of know it when you feel it, but it's hard to describe it. it well, it always I always think of soul music and there's just something about it that you can't help but sort of move and it just does something to you and that's one of the things about I think being a psycho-spiritual psychotherapist there's a it's hard to put a lot of these concepts into words because well it just is <laughs> well so. and about food I talk to people about food in the sense that this miraculous thing that you're doing okay think about this apple and then you put this into this orifice in your body and chew it up and basically that food, then your body takes all these miraculous chemicals and through this mm. chemistry and biological process, that food becomes you. Yeah. How amazing is that, you know? You know, I was thinking too, a few years ago, my husband and I took the kids to Disneyland and we stayed there and we were there for five days. And then we went to stay at, um, what's the suburb on the beach there? Can't remember where it is. Anyway, we went out for dinner and every one of us ordered vegetables, even the kids. And it was because we'd been at Disneyland eating Disneyland food for four days. <laughs> and I could not believe, even the kids, I, I ordered artichoke. Uh, there's that lovely restaurant just opposite the pier down there. I can't remember the name. I'd ordered an artichoke and it cost me 39 US dollars. <laughs> I went to the toilet and came back and the kids had eaten the artichoke. And it's exactly like you're talking about, we were like, wow, aren't these vegetables great? <laughs> Yeah, because yeah. there was just no vegetables at um at, at Disneyland, so it was kind of like coming from another planet to, you know, seeing vegetables uh, yeah. for the it first time. <laughs> it is a different planet than Disneyland, but I often try. You know, when I had Montanito, when I owned Montanito and ran it, we had yeah. a garden, and I wanted oh, the, nice. the clients to be able to see, even if they only grew, if they were only there a few weeks and got to see the basil growing or a tomato sprout sprout out of the ground, you know, or they planted something that maybe they weren't going to eat, but they knew that other clients coming in later would eat. That's a really lovely way to bring in connection, isn't it? Yeah, and then they would go out to the garden and maybe other girls had planted lettuce and then they came in and they got Mm. to get the lettuce out of the ground and make a salad from it. And it's just astonishing when you get back to the awesomeness of nature and Mm. the awesomeness of this world. And you don't always live there. You don't always sit there and walk around deeper. But I think we've just become so disconnected from it. Yeah, that's right. And also the thing is you're talking in a way that makes food sound quite pleasurable. And we know with people with eating issues, it's so restrict. Even people who binge and who overeat, there's still a very large component of restriction and stinginess and just no pleasure on the plate. You know, it's typically diet food, it's restricting carbs, it's restricting fats. So to hear you talking about food in in such a way, it's, it's like we need to help, you know, the, these people sort of come back to allowing themselves pleasure. Yeah, because over time, as you know, mm. it, it becomes this habitual way that the neural pathways get laid down in the brain and you're barely even making a choice. By, mm. by that mm. point, 
your brain kind of obligates you. Yeah. You eat one thing and that triggers your whole dynamic in your brain where you go, oh, if I eat that, well, I have to eat the whole box, you know? Yeah. If I eat one, I'm that means I've already crossed the line, so now I'm going to binge. And there's no real pleasure in that. No, I don't no. know anyone who ultimately says they have a real pleasure in that. Oh, it's um, hell. It feels like hell because you're yeah. in that moment, you're already like the inner critic is so strong while you're, you're doing it and there's this compulsion and you can't stop. It just feels awful. Yeah, because if there really was and if you felt that it was so great and everything, you wouldn't have to hide it. You wouldn't have to do it in secret. Yeah. You wouldn't be going to see a therapist because you really want to change it. But we have such a messed up relationship with food on this planet anyway. Like I was saying, we get completely distant from it, you know. Mm. I mean, that guy, Jamie Oliver, do you know who he is? Yeah, yeah, I love him. Well, you know, he was going around to schools and asking kids, where do you think this comes from? What do you think this is called? And I remember. it was astonishing. The kids didn't know of a potato from a cauliflower. You know, they didn't know... Because, oh, where does it come from? It comes from a package in the store, you know? Mm. So when you get disconnected like that, or mm. when you ultimately use food to numb out other feelings, and then you feel guilty for doing it, and then you feel bad about yourself, so then you want to go and numb out even more. It's this horrific pattern that gets set up. Mm. But I think it's important for anyone who's trying to get better to understand that Deep down, you know, and you know I believe this, you have mm. a core, healthy soul self that you're born with that is still there. Yeah. Yep. And over time, you've developed this other disordered self. It's kind of running the show. But you can get your healthy self, you can strengthen it and get it back in control. And it's you don't have to get rid of that other self. You get rid of the behaviors it uses. And I think mm. this is really key because I think people think – well, that is me, and I can't get rid of that part of me. It's who I am, and it's like, no, you don't get rid of that self. You integrate it back. So instead of being two split parts, you become yep. a whole person again. And what you do get rid of is the behaviors because ultimately when your healthy soul self gets strong, you don't need the behaviors anymore. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So you've talked a little bit about going hiking and things like that. You know, you've been recovered for a very long time, so you're a really good example of what life can be like. How do you stay connected? How do you feed your healthy soul self? I guess that's the question. You know, how do we make that bigger? I'm continually finding things to read from people who I think are good teachers of this. Mm -hmm. A couple examples would be Michael Singer. I don't know if you know who he is, who wrote The Untethered Soul. Yes. Or let's see, there's Sam. Uh, His name is is escaping me right now. Um, Sam Harris Uh who wrote a book called Waking Up. There's a guy named Jeff Foster who has a book called Deep Acceptance. Okay. There are people who, so you can go, I can send these to you if you want. But Yeah, I can there, put those in the show notes. There are people whose books I like to continually read, even though if I, I've read them before. I've read Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now several times. Yeah. Pima Children, this female Buddhist monk. Yeah. But I go back and... I read because these are not things about dogma or religion. These are ways that I go, oh, yes. Oh, I remember. Oh, yeah. You know, I remember to be connected. Another one is singing. And and, um, 
I think you're right. You mentioned music, and I, music is a direct hit to the soul. I, mm. I certainly think some music does that more than others, but you can eat dinner or you can dine and light candles and have beautiful music in the background, and there's no doubt that you feel the difference. Or taking people's hands and holding hands with my friends before having a meal. And I think saying grace was supposed to do that, but uh -huh. I, think, I think a lot of people did it out of sort of a rope. They learned it and they just spouted it out. So I think taking a few minutes to appreciate the food, to appreciate that you're going to have this meal go into your body, you know. I think that, that's really important. I think, you know, you're talking about having gratitude and being thankful for the food and really respecting the food because if we think about eating issues, there's a real lack of respect accidentally for self and and for the food and to take some time to really be present to, you know, the fact that, the girls at like the treatment center that you you owned you know that this lettuce is even growing and that they can pick this lettuce and then they can make a salad out of this lettuce it's really putting a whole new sort of take on it isn't it rather than this sort of desperate use of the food for something yeah i think it just helps you get a cycle of life thing yeah as opposed to like food is an object yeah absolutely i mean to me having that idea that food becomes me is, I think it's pretty astonishing. But there are other ways, let's see, I, uh, breathing does it for me, yep. yoga does it for me. I do meditate, although I've always found I tend to be more an anxious type and I find it harder for me. So yoga helps me meditate in a way, in a moving way. I can sort of move my body, but I can have my eyes closed and mm. hold poses and breathe and I want to say something there about meditation, actually, because I find a lot of people with eating issues, for me personally, I've been on silent retreats and I spent the whole time in my superego and it was actually, it, it was not conducive to, 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 to me feeling, not that you meant to feel good, but I didn't like it. But once I spoke to the instructor and told her, she said, what does feel good? And for me, it was walking the labyrinth. So for a lot of people with eating issues, I find they need to move the meditation yeah, me uh, included in, in something where they're coming home to their body to physically by moving it. So yoga or walking, even swimming. I find, you know, swimming up and down the pool, swimming laps and counting one, one, one for the, you know, for the duration yeah. of the lap. So it's, it's interesting that you said that. Yeah, that was not only for myself, but I've also found it with clients because they have a hard time being in their body in mm. the moment mm. and a rhythmic movement will do that. And I think even running can do that. But of course, running can turn into how far, how long, how fast, how hard. But sure. if you can turn it into a breathing, like you really pay attention to the breath and the wind and you're not counting how far and you're not doing it to burn calories. And mm. yoga is different because you can hold a pose and you can take it right to the edge, not anybody else's edge, your edge, not comparing yourself to anybody and seeing, wow, I couldn't touch my toes last week. I can touch them this week. My body is gently going with me. You know, there yeah. are some really cool things like that. Yeah, I'm just thinking too, I just wrote a blog on five different types of dance, like Nia, Gabrielle Ross, five rhythms. So there's, there's lots of different ways that people can start to connect with that, isn't there? It's just so much about realizing that there's so much more to you than this chattering mind. Yes. And if you can just 
slow it down even for a few moments, even if you just take five minutes a day where you say, I'm just going to sit with my eyes closed and breathe. It's surprising how hard that is. Yeah. And people think, oh, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it because I'm having thoughts. And that's not the point. You, you have thoughts and you just notice it. Oh, there's another thought. And you just let it go like a, like a train going by. Then yes. you start doing yes. the breathing again. And helps to disidentify from those very strict and, and the rules that these girls are, and, and boys are um, identified with, we were talking about earlier. So that's kind of when we move from ego into soul when we do that. Yeah. So tell me, on a deeper and spiritual level, so someone who is caught in the cycle of disordered eating, from a spiritual perspective, what are this person's symptoms and behaviors calling for them to awaken to? So I know for me, I mean, I spent a long time in, with a psycho-spiritual psychotherapist and I really felt that my eating disorder has actually brought value, meaning and purpose to my life. I know some people would say, that's crazy. This is a terrible illness. How could it have brought anything good to you? What would you say to people? Yeah, this is a tricky one because of course we wouldn't wish an illness on anybody, yeah. right? You don't wish, oh, I hope you get an illness so you can learn something. <laughs> yeah. But like any illness, like any illness, some people who have battled cancer and come to the other side of it or depression and come to the other side of it, the beauty about having some kind of challenge like that or crisis like that mm. is when we come into this confrontation with ourselves and have to sort of reevaluate things. What's important to us? What do we value? It's, again, I'm going to quote Thomas More, who calls it a dark night of the soul. Mm. And what he basically would say, and, and I agree with this, you have to kind of, even though you wouldn't wish it on anybody, once you have one, you sit through it for its gold. Yeah. Because you go through all the mud and murk and whatever, and what are the gold nuggets that, that come out of it? And the clients who, who when I owned Montanito, the clients who came out of that were so grateful to have come for the treatment. And because one of the things that they would say is that they thought they were coming for eating disorder treatment and they realized they were basically coming to life school. You know, they were learning how to get reacquainted with their life on different layers. Yeah. And again, not that the ego was bad, that their egos were important. And if they wanted to work hard in jobs or get straight A's or even put on makeup and look nice. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's a whole other layer underneath connected to all beings and connected to the planet and recognizing that food becomes me. And, you know, just recognizing the whole thing about we're little balls of atoms whirling around inside mm -hmm. of this body, you know? Mm -hmm. I think something that we talk about as a Carolyn Costin coach is, is really that it provides an awakening from that superficial life or even just from our trauma history or our wounding into a spiritual life and into a life full of value, meaning and purpose. There are clients now who still text me when it's a full moon because I used to oh, take wow. them outside and we would howl at the moon. So they'll text me when it's a full moon, you know which is so funny. Uh, Do you know, I love that because, you know, if we're thinking about that sort of transitional object and for me, thinking back to my first therapist who I just love dearly, to have that sort of that I could look at the moon and feel that connection again, I just think that must be so amazing for these clients to have oh, done so that with fun. you. And I've been all over the world and gotten these texts, you know, wow. moon, you know. And I think there's other things like you were alluding to that we figure out, you know, sometimes 
we do figure out the soul is longing for something mm -hmm. and the eating disorder may be the part of you that's saying i need to be fed and yeah. going through treatment you may recognize all kinds of things you may recognize certain ways that you didn't know your soul didn't know how to deal with anger or didn't mm -hmm. know how to deal with discomfort or didn't know how to deal with relationships or didn't know how to deal with past traumas and sometimes it's the eating disorder that lands you in a place where you do get to work through that so again it's not saying oh it's a good thing you had your eating disorder so you can discover this but it's important to say ah but you can find there there's some of the gold nuggets there there's some of the things that if you had not done that you would not have been looking at these issues or maybe it just would have taken you a lot longer yeah, and you know, I'm thinking about you and your life and your life journey. And I mean, obviously you can answer this for yourself, but I kind of look at my life and I think I've had an amazing career and I work in a job that doesn't even feel like a job. I sit with people in their suffering and I work long-term with people as well as the coaching, but I just feel truly blessed to be able to do this work. And so for me, when I think about my own, you know, what what value has it brought me, I think... I just feel so blessed to be able to do this work. And if I hadn't suffered in that way, I don't think I would be able to do this work at the level that I can. Yeah, well, I certainly agree with that. I mean, I definitely think it was my calling and mm. there's no doubt in my mind, especially because I don't even know if you know this story, Jody, but mm. I had a dream about Montanito, about... I, I can't remember exactly, but at least 10 years before I ever saw that property. Do you know about this story? No, I don't. Well. Oh, this is so weird. So I had a dream. The dream was in the mid-1980s, mm -hmm. somewhere around 1985, 1986. And I had a dream that I had this house, and it was in the foothills, and I had six girls there, and we were cooking dinner, and then we went for a... Um, no, we went for a walk first mm. and up the mountains and we had this walk and we came back and we cooked dinner and I saw the whole house and everything. And then we had a little group and I woke up and I told my husband, that's so weird. I had a chef and we were cooking for them. Okay. Now fast forward at least 10 years later, my wow. girlfriend calls me and she says, oh, I'm going to buy this house and I'm going to turn it into a, a rehab center for physical therapy. Mm. She was a physical therapist. So I go over, she wants me to see it. I drive up the driveway and it's the house. Oh my gosh. <laughs> at, first, at first it was like, wow, I've been here before. Mm. But then I walked in and I went, oh, I know, I recognize these stairs. Oh my God, I recognize this living room. And I, then all of a sudden the dream came back to me and I said to my friend, oh my God, I dreamt about this house and I had girls like in the treatments in there here. Wow. Who all had eating disorders and I was taking care of them in this house. And I said, I know where the bedrooms are. I can tell you right now what the backyard looks like. And we went out there. And she said, okay, fine. You should have this house. <laughs> and this was before any, there were no residential treatment centers in the U.S. Mm. And I said to my husband, I have to do this. I'm supposed to do this. So I ended up opening Montanito. And I can't explain that dream. But talk about soul level or talk about something that is beyond the conscious mind what would cause me to have a dream 10 years earlier of 
the, the treating girls in this exact same house. I've never ever been to this even area of mm. Los Angeles before. It's amazing, isn't it? And just thinking about you know, for anyone listening who is out there, and and in terms of listening to dreams and and bringing those the messages from dreams and and being creative, I think with recovery and, you know, I mean, I know these days there's a lot of acronym based therapy and just the lost art of actually being with the symbolism and the calling of dreams and what, what are they calling for you to actualize in a way? And it's, it's almost like in psychosynthesis, we call it will before consciousness. And that Mm -hmm. kind of sounds like what happened to you. (laughs) Something's pulling you towards something without you even knowing about it yet. Well, and to be open because had I just gone, that's weird. I had a dream about this place, but I was yes. very struck by it and I was very touched by it. And I realized that that's not a normal occurrence, you know? No. And the other thing I would say to people listening is what's super important. You don't have to have a dream like this, and but it's just to be open to experiences and to know, to fundamentally know that the eating disorder, no matter how bad you think it is, no matter how strong, because I always hear people say it's more powerful than I am, or I can't yeah. do this. It's too it's stronger than me. It's not possible because it is you. Yeah. yeah. And you have given it all of its power. And even if that's on an unconscious level, this is not an alien that landed from the outside and has taken over. Mm. This is not a, a virus like a cancer that's growing. This is something that is born of your own unrest or your own trap or your own habituation to these certain patterns that you've gotten yourself into. Mm. And it's not stronger than you. And I think that's so important for people to know that they absolutely can get their healthy self stronger than their eating disorder self. And then the eating disorder self goes away because it's not necessary. anymore. It's not needed. Yeah. And I'm thinking too, is something you talked about earlier around being in nature and stuff. And I think with how crowded our lives are with busyness, with being online all the time, one step for me is really trying to scale back from that to allow that space for for these sort of messages to be open. I think if we're, if we're always crowded and busy, there's no space for any of that. Yeah. I would tell people just take five minutes to do what I said about Mm, sitting with mm. yourself, you know, in the morning before you start your all busyness of going on your phone or the internet or whatever, I would say, or, or, or take 10 minutes to go find in your neighborhood, a tree, any tree. I don't care what it is. And look at that tree and tell yourself what if this was the very last tree of its kind Mm, and it was the only one it was the only one there were no more trees like this particular tree Mm. then everybody would be surrounding it you'd have to pay to go see it they have (laughs) guards all over it right (laughs) yeah and this is what re-enchantment of everyday life is is the Mm. book is about it's like how you take things that we've come to see as ordinary and realize their sacredness if it was the last tree then it would be sacred. But it's the same thing. It's just how we value it. It's looking at things. It's how we pay attention to things. And that's the other thing, you know, in the eight keys, the key you were talking about, finding meaning and purpose, it Mm. talks about how to pay attention. What are you paying attention to? You know, the size of your thighs or the size of your heart, you know? Yeah, that's so important. And, you know, I'm thinking for people who maybe they're listening right now, maybe they're feeling like, you know, I I get this a lot when people first come into 
get to the 5% healthy self gets them to, to therapy. And then we're working with that other 95% for a little while until that healthy self grows. But some people don't even feel like they deserve to recover. Some people feel like they can't recover. Maybe some other people have had many failed attempts at recovery. What would you say to them? I would say that being in this business for so long, I've treated people who've had an eating disorder 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, who are completely recovered today. I don't believe that there's somebody who could walk in my door that I would say, it's impossible for you. The human being is too strong and crafty and unique. And I think it's harder. The longer you've had it, it's harder. But like I said, the eating disorder only gets its power from you. It doesn't get it from any external source, only from you. So it's just that somehow over time, what happens is we're channeling all that energy into the eating disorder cell. And it takes some steps of unwinding it. But luckily, you can unwind it faster than you've spent garnering its strength, you know? So it doesn't take as many years as you've had it. And that's what's lovely about it. Once it starts to unwind, it can kind of flow on its own, which yeah. is which is the beauty of it. Everybody who walks through my door, I look at and say, if I could do it, so could you. Yeah. I don't have any magic powers. But I think the people that don't get better are the ones that give up trying because yeah. they think yeah. it's not going to work for me. It's too hard. It's not worth it. I can't do it. And those are the people that I see that don't make it. And I understand that. And I'm very respectful of somebody, Mm -hmm. you know, I always try to hold up the light and always try to hold up the way. But if someone really says, I can't do it, I'm not going to do it. I mean, I'm respectful and say, well, I'm going to be here with you still and I'll have hope even if you don't. But I'm not going to treat them poorly because I think people need to know that it's their life that they're making choices about. Absolutely. So obviously, you know, the last few years you've had your own institute and everything we've been talking about today is very much a part of working with a Carolyn Coston coach. Can you share a little bit more with our listeners about your institute and about the coaches and the kind of work that they're doing with people? Well, it's similar to, you know, when I opened Montanita, when I opened the residential, it's because I realized there was a gap in the field. We had inpatient hospitals and then we had private practice therapists. We could go once or twice a week to see your therapist. That didn't work. You had to go to hospital. And there was no in between. Yep. And the same thing happened once I sold Montanito. And I was back out sort of looking at the lay of the land and eating disorder treatment. I realized that there's a lot of coaches, life coaches and sober coaches for people with chemical dependency. But there weren't eating disorder coaches. And I kind of knew why that was. The field was a little apprehensive. I think therapists and dietitians were worried that coaches might take over their jobs and they might not be well-trained and, mm. and God forbid recovered people would be doing it because maybe they weren't well enough to do it. Mm-hmm. So I could see there were reasons, but they didn't seem to be enough reasons to rule out what is a very, very important thing because personal recovery or lived experience can be an asset or a liability. Sure. And I decided I wanted to train people to know how to use it as an asset so that they could help people in the trenches, in the day-to-day times when a dietitian or a therapist just can't be there. So at restaurants or going to the person's house, let's say a person gets out of treatment for an eating disorder and they're going back home 
maybe the coach can go meet them at home and help set up the kitchen, get the food in the house, get rid of maybe laxatives or just like chemical dependency uh, uh, 12-step sponsors or sober coaches mm -hmm. used to do. And they just weren't there and nobody was training them. And actually, I had a client yesterday who's just out of a treatment centre saying how difficult going to the supermarket was. And, you know, this is the perfect yeah. opportunity for a coach to actually support that person through that experience. Yeah, I don't know what we're thinking. I mean, it's why I opened residential. I mean, people used to go in a hospital and they'd get fed, you know, the hospital staff would make the food, bring it to them on a tray. When I first ran a hospital program, I thought, this is ridiculous. Well, then we're discharging client from hospital and now they have to go shopping they're still doing that and because of covid people are getting chucked out because of you know like they're just okay you've got a cough off you go and they may yeah. not even have finished the treatment yet so it's it's all very yeah. much refeeding and then bye-bye and then do it on your own so yeah. yeah that's a perfect example for a coach going grocery shopping with somebody or when somebody changes their clothing size, going to the store with them or, mm. you know, sometimes I have coaches that do some live-in transitions when someone is coming and they're living at home for the first time outside of treatment, but they mm. want some help or just being a tech support where the person could, and let's say it's midnight and someone feels like binging. Well, not all coaches do this, but most of the coaches are pretty good about setting parameters about, okay, with a particular client at a particular mm. point in the treatment, you can text me if you want to binge because that, that by the way, is key seven, you know, reach out to people instead yeah. of the eating disorder. Yeah. So I realized there were a few people trying to do coaching, but I looked online and around and I found out no one was training them. And since I've been in the field for so long, I've trained thousands of therapists mm. and dietitians and um, mental health counselors to work in hospital and residential, I realized this is second nature to me. I'm going to train coaches. And as you know, it's not an easy, it's not a short, you know, weekend course. It's a long course. I think this is really, really important because I've done several coach trainings over the years and the coaching industry isn't regulated. And I think maybe some professionals out there might think it's a little bit flimsy, but yeah. I would love for everyone to know that this is probably one of the most rigorous trainings I have ever done in my 20 years of working you know, as a therapist. But that is a good thing because, you know, you get people calling themselves a coach after a four hour training yeah. course. I mean, this is, this, you know, pretty much takes um, at least several months and you can sort of do it at your own pace. It took me a year, I guess, from start to finish. And just the fact that we have supervision with you. I'm nearly up for my two years, so I'm having to do continued professional development with you. This is not a coach training like any other that I've done or that I've seen. And I think that that's really, really important for, especially for treatment centers and psychologists and therapists to know that your coaches are, you know, you've yeah. got a very high standard. <laughs> well, I have my name on it, you know, if they're yeah. going to be a Carolyn Costin Institute coach, I felt like I can't do anything less. I have to go the whole distance. And so, mm. yeah, that's why there's an internship and everybody has to send me their tapes and, 
Yeah, it is different. And people think, wow, that's a lot. But I think most people like you ultimately are very appreciative because they do feel really trained up, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes people, and I see this even with sort of counselling trainings that are popping up these days, people come out, if they don't have a rigorous enough training and have that experience of having their tapes listened to, you know, we're talking about supervision tapes, they come out and they're not able to sort of, they don't feel confident with the clients. So it's really important from that perspective as well, I think. Yeah, I think so too. And I think anyone who agrees to work with one of the coaches when they're in their training, they know that I'm there. I'm listening to everything. And so if there's something that I think should go a different way, I'm right there to help the coach you know, turn that around or go in this direction. So I don't feel that anybody gets slighted at all because if anything, they have me 40 years as a therapist, you know, who very much the coach minded on the case as well. Absolutely. So we have come to an end of our time today. So it's so fast. I know, I know. So if someone wants to get in touch with a Carolyn Costin coach or they want to, maybe there's some professionals out there listening and they've all recovered people who would like to train with you, where do they find you? They can go to carolyncoston.com. That's my website. That's pretty easy. Yep. You can also type in Carolyn Costin Institute and it'll uh-huh. take you to the same place. Or if they have questions first, they can email me, which is my first name, Carolyn, at carolyncoston.com. So it's pretty easy, all kind of going along the same lines. Perfect. Stuck with your name. Good. Yeah, Good. start with my name. You'll find me. <laughs> it's been so great talking to you. I've really enjoyed our conversation. And I hope that professionals are listening to this as well as people who are suffering, because I think that this is a much needed element of treatment that is missing so spirituality and the coaching piece so i hope that uh people have learned something from your wisdom or all those years of wisdom you know as i say i don't do this soul stuff because i think it's cool i, I and sure. someone said to me you know why do you do that and they think it's kind of woo woo and i said i don't i don't do it for any other reason but that i believe it works i believe yep. it's yep. i believe it's healing so I, I, I hope you're right that people can hear this and maybe look a little bit further into what that might mean for them or their practice as a therapist or their work as, as a client. Absolutely. Okay, Carolyn, thanks for coming today. Thanks for having me. I'll see you online. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening to the Soul Sessions podcast. Love this episode? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. To learn more about how you can befriend your body, feelings, mind, and soul, get Jody's free 65-page ebook at thesoulcenter.online. Until next time.